I mean, I told Joseph to come hold the plank for 30 seconds and I'd give him five bucks. And my only promise to Pam was you come hold the plank for five seconds and I'll pay you what's right. And both of them did what I asked them to do and at the end of it, I paid Joseph $5 and I paid Pam the exact same. So, is it fair? Now, I don't want you to answer out loud. I want you to really think about that. Is that fair? If you go in and you were to go into your employer tomorrow and your employer brings you in with someone else and does what employers should not do and said, look, uh, I'm going to give you guys both a promotion. You're both going to be working in the same area. You're going to have the same title. All right. And then they say, Ben, I want you to come in at six o'clock every morning and you're going to work till six o'clock. You're going to work 12 hours a day. And Wyatt, I'm going to have you come in at 5 p.m. and you're going to work from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. And I'm going to pay you what's fair. And so then you start asking, well, well, what is that? And the boss looks at Ben and he says, well, Ben, if you do that, you work 12 hours a day, you come in at six o'clock and then leave at six, I'm going to pay you $80,000 a year. Okay, great. And Wyatt, if you come in at 5 p.m. to 6 p.m., I think for your work, I'm going to give you $80,000 a year. If you're in Ben's position, do you take the job? No. Why not? Because it's not fair. You ever had your kids say that to you? You know, you do something, oh, that's not fair. You know, and, and it's all, you know, nowadays it's over the electronics, you know. Well, I mean, she had it, she's had it all morning. I mean, she just woke up 10 minutes ago, you know, and she asked me for it, you know. It's like, it's not fair. And, and for a lot of us, we, we can be obsessed with what is fair and what's right. And, and this is actually a topic that Jesus is going to talk about. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open it this morning to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. This past Wednesday was uh, the season of Lent in many faiths and many faith traditions. And Lent is a season where people make a commitment to God that they're going to give something up. And it's for six Sundays, I believe, before uh, Easter, kind of leading up to the resurrection. Does the microphone sound loud to y'all? Or is it just me? Can you can bring it down a little bit? I'm hearing like a little bit. I'm sorry. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that. But um, so Lent is a season where they where you give up something and and uh, and you prepare your heart for Easter. And so a lot of people make the decision they're going to give up certain types of foods. Uh, I had a friend of mine tell me recently that I said, hey, for Lent, I'm giving up Facebook for the next six weeks. And so they're giving up Facebook, and that's one of the things they're giving up. And so that's a season where people make a commitment. They say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give something up. I'm going to sacrifice something of myself. And they do it to kind of symbolize what Jesus must have faced when he went into the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. And it's self-deprivation so that they can, they can have a spiritual encounter and they prepare their hearts for the resurrection and for the celebration of that. So let me just ask you this. I, I want you to think about this question for a minute. What would you be willing to give up in order to follow Jesus? And the other part of that is, what would you not be willing to give up? So you, you probably have a list like, you know, I, I, I would probably give up my car if that's what it took to follow Jesus. I mean, it'd be an inconvenience, but I'd give that up. Or I would give up my daily trip to Starbucks. Oh, wait, never mind. We won't give that up. Uh, I, I would give up 
you know, maybe some of my money to follow Jesus. I would give some of my time. But I don't know that I'd be willing to give up my family, you know? If my mom's already threatened me that if God ever calls me to the mission field that I have to answer no until she dies, you know, because you're not going to take my grandbabies from me. That's what she says. <laughs> and, and, but, you know, would you be willing to give up your family to follow Jesus? What would you be willing to give up to follow him? And then what are the things that you, you'd really struggle if God called you to give those things up? Charles brought a really great message last week from Matthew 19 about the rich young ruler. And he made this point. I wanted to begin here today with his story and then go right to the next passage in Matthew 19. With the rich young ruler, Charles made this point last week. He said, money is a tool that we use for God's glory, but it is a terrible savior. Money is a resource that God gives us, but it is not our savior. It is not something to be trusted. It's not where our faith is. And you'll remember the story. If you look in Matthew chapter 19, and that, that this man came up to Jesus and essentially was asking him, uh, you know, what, what do I have to do to be right with you to have eternal life? And, and Jesus listed some commandments and he says in verse 18, which ones? Jesus lists them out. And the young man said in verse 20, I've done all these things. In verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And then the tragedy of that story is what's in verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away, what? Sorrowful. And the reason why is he had great possessions. So Jesus said to follow me, he said, go sell everything you got and give to the poor and then come follow me. And that's what Jesus was saying to that rich young ruler. And I think Charles did a great job of saying that God's not asking all of us to today go and sell all of our homes. That's not necessarily the application of that. But the point that Jesus was making with this man is if you want to follow me, there's going to be a cost involved. And the man went away sorrowful when he could have gone away with great joy but he chose sorrow, and the reason was he had great possessions. He said, look, there's, there's just some things that I'm not willing to give up in order to follow Jesus. Now, Peter, one of the disciples, was watching this encounter. He heard what Jesus said, to go sell what you have and give to the poor and then come and follow him. And Peter asked a great question in verse 27. So in Matthew 19, 27, Peter said in reply, see, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So the rich young ruler walked away sorrowful because he wasn't willing to sell his possessions and follow Jesus. And Peter, hearing that, comes to the Lord after Jesus had taught about salvation. He said, look, Lord, we did what you said. We left everything to follow you. So what are we going to get out of this? What's the reward for doing that? He had heard Jesus say in verse 21, if you want to follow me, if you want to know what it's like, you got to go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and follow Jesus. And so he said to the Lord, he said, Look, we've done that. We did exactly what you told that rich young ruler. So Lord, at the end of this, what's the outcome, outcome gonna be? What's the end game of all this? 
In 2018, the average family car payment was $530. $530. Yours may be more, maybe less. I just can't imagine paying $530. But anyway, I mean, it just takes my breath away to think about it. So when I go in to buy a car, <clears throat> you know, I, how many of you are like me? Like, I know this if I buy from a dealership, that if they let me walk off the lot, regardless of how many times they tell me they sold it to me below list price, I know they're lying. They're not going to let you walk off the lot and not make money off you. Just, you know, so that's your first bargaining tool. But you go in there and you say, look, uh, I want to buy a vehicle. And I always tell my salesman, if I go to a dealership, I tell them the same, I give them the same spill. If you lie to me one time, the deal's off. If I catch you in a lie, I'm walking away. I don't care if you work with, work me, with me for three weeks. You be honest with me, I'll be honest with you. And I tell them, I'm trying to get the best price of this vehicle, and I know that you're trying to make money off me. So we're all up front with it. And so I tell them, don't talk to me about payments. Don't talk to me about interest rates. Don't talk to me about any of that stuff. I want you to tell me the lowest price I can get on this car. And they come, let me go talk to my manager. And they're back there with their big supercomputer calculator and come back and tell me the same goofy thing, right? And they say, well, we'll do it for this. Oh yeah, that's, that's not much, that's not enough. Well, let me go talk to my manager. And they go back and you gotta play that game, right? And then right at the end, they say, well, I tell you what, we might be able to go lower on the price, but let's talk about financing. No, 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 no. How I'm going to pay for this vehicle has nothing to do with the price of this car. You feel me? Like, I'll worry about financing and how I'm going to pay for it later. You tell me what I'm going to pay for it. That, that's what I want to know. And so well, I just go back and forth. And this one guy, when we bought a, a Trailblazer years ago, when we had our first kid, we had a Toyota Corolla. And we went one time to Target in a Toyota Corolla and bought groceries with a child car seat in the bag. And I said, tomorrow we're going to start looking for a new vehicle because I'm never doing that again. And so I had like, you know, cereal on my lap and, you know, whatever. I was, nope, we ain't doing that. So we went and bought a Trailblazer. And I worked with this guy named William for three weeks on this Trailblazer. And I mean, I was just haggling him on the price. And I finally got down to what I felt like was going to be the lowest possible price on this vehicle. And I told him, Will, I'm going to watch in the newspaper this week. If I see any other car for that same price or for a better price, I'm going to come in here. I said, I'm going to buy a car on Saturday. Saturday morning, they ran the ads in the newspaper for the young people. That's this thing they used to print and you'd read it and they had ads and stuff. And so I, uh, I went in and I, bought, I saw this, this dealership way across town in Baytown, actually, that had that same exact vehicle that I've been working with William on for about $1,000 cheaper. What they listed in the paper, which I knew I could get a lower price than that, right? So I called that, that dealership and I said, look, I'm working with this guy up here, but I want to know what's the lowest drive out price you'll give me. They gave me the price and it was about $1,500 cheaper than what William had offered. So I went into William and I said, William, you're in danger of losing your sale. I said, you're in danger because this dealership over here is offering me a great price. And I said, this is the price they're offering. What we, what's the lowest you can go? He goes back, talks to his manager and they're about $700 short of what this other dealership's offering. So I said, William, I want you to bring your manager in here. And his manager comes in, and this is where I put William to the test. With his manager standing over his shoulder, I said, William, I want you to put yourself in my shoes for a minute. If you were looking at that vehicle, and you could buy it here, same exact car, you see the picture, I had the ad with me, you see the picture, see all the list of all the specs on it, same exact vehicle, same color, everything that we wanted, but that other dealership is selling it for $700 cheaper than your dealership, which one would you buy it from? And William was just, I'm about to lose this deal because I'm about to have to lie to him, right? 
well, I would buy from us because our customer, you know, they give you that spiel. He goes, honestly, I'd buy it from the other dealership. I said, William, I'll buy it from you. I, I did. I bought the car for $700 more. I don't really believe the other dealership. But anyway, I use it, right? I bought from him because it's the principal. But, but here's the way that I feel about it. Like I go in there and then I, I, I haggle the price down as low as I think I can get it. But I still feel like I'm not getting a good deal. You know what I mean? So right as we're signing paper, I'm like, William, I, oh, I forgot, man. One more thing I need you to do. I need you to tint the windows for me. And, and he goes, well, that's going to, I said, no, you, I need you to throw that in there for free. Because I bought from you and not the other dealership. He's like, all right. You know, so he came in there and, and did it and, and we did it. So then he said, well, let's go back to financing. I said, oh, no, 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 William. I said, we're, we're not gonna, we're not gonna finance the vehicle. No, no, no. And uh, I said, but I do have a trade and so I'm, I wanna know what you're gonna give me for the trade, right? So we're gonna, now we're gonna negotiate the trade, right? I mean, it's this whole process. And then, but if you've ever traded a vehicle, this is where I feel like in car sales, you get ripped off. They, they do not give you what you know your car is worth. You know how many chicken nuggets have been eaten in your car, you know, like how much wear and tear there is. You know that this car has value. And so at the end of a trade, at the end of a deal, you say, okay, well, here's my car, but you tell me what I'm going to get in return. Here's my money. You tell me what I'm going to get in return. That's the way that we operate. When we look at whether we're going to buy something, we say, okay, am I going to buy into that because what's the return on my investment? So it's not, it's not really crazy for Peter to ask that question that he did. Okay, Lord, we've done all this, but what are we going to get out of this? And, and Peter was being honest, by the way. He, he wasn't, you know, making himself seem bigger. Remember in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus called them, the Bible tells us that they immediately, Peter and Andrew, his brother, they left their nets, they left their livelihood, they left their boat, and they followed Jesus. They left it all behind. So Peter was being honest when he came to the Lord and said, Lord, we've done this. What are we going to get in return? And the, and the question on the surface seems, okay, that's not, a, that's not a bad question. But Jesus, as he always does, knew Peter's heart. And he knows our hearts. He knows the lists in our hearts of things that we would give up to follow Jesus and the things that we wouldn't. He knows what we're thinking when we ask him questions like that. Lord, I've had to give up some of my friends to follow you, so what's in it for me? What's going to happen? Lord, I've, I've given up my time. You know that I've served you, so, you know, where's the reward for this? Lord, we've been tithing, we've been giving, and we've been trying to honor you with our money, but man, we've just been having one financial heartache after the next. What's the deal? I'm trying to follow you, Jesus, and I've given up these things. What's going to get, what am I going to get out of it? So notice in verse 28, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you will have followed me, excuse me, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. 
In verse 28, Jesus references a time that if you want to read later, you can go read it in the book of Revelation. It's Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 15, when in the millennial reign of Christ, we will reign on the earth with Christ. And Jesus makes a promise that when that time comes, you will reign and have authority in the earth with me. That's promised in Revelation chapter 20. But then verse 29 is so important. I want you to look at it again at what Jesus said. And everyone who leaves houses or people or lands, they're going to receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. The idea that we read in verse 29 is sacrifice. Whoever has left this or given up this or given up this or given up this will receive a blessing. And we think of that verse in terms of sacrifice. That's what Peter thought of in verse 27. Lord, we have given up all these things. We have sacrificed these things for you. So what's in it for me? So how many of you have a car that is, let's say five years old or younger? Just raise your hand. Raise your hand. Raise them high, don't be shy. It's not, I'm not gonna ask you about the price you haggled down to. Okay. How many of you like your car? Just raise your hand. I mean, I drive a minivan, it's pretty amazing, I think. It doesn't have a deer imprint in it anymore. That's, a, I think, a step up, right? And we have door handles on this one, so we, we feel like we're, we're high rolling here, right? Okay, so I told you earlier, the average American's car payment in 2018 was $530. And let's say that you had negotiated for a brand new car last week and you were paying $530 on your car. And you had waited for this car, you wanted this car, and then someone came up to you and said, look, I want you to go sell that car and I want you to buy a clunker. And every month I want you to give that $530 to me and I'm gonna invest it. Many of us start thinking, well, I don't wanna give up my car. I don't wanna drive a clunker. I don't wanna look like the Pollards when they drive up to the school, you know? I, I like my car, I like it nice. And, and so we would think of that in terms of sacrifice. But if that investor put that $530 a month for 40 years in a mutual fund that, that had 12% interest, do you know what the value of that investment would be? If you just put it straight into something with 0% interest, you would have given, put in there over $240,000 over the 40 years. But with compound interest, do you want to know what the value of $530 a month in an investment account is at 12%? $4.5 million. Does that sound like a sacrifice? What does it sound like? It sounds like an investment. Do you see the difference in mentality? I'm not sacrificing my car. I'm investing in something that's a far greater worth. And when it comes to our walk with Jesus, many of us are so focused on what we've given up that we say, this is what I've sacrificed, and Jesus says, no, you're investing your life for the sake of the kingdom, for something that's infinitely more valuable. And that's what he says at the end of verse 29, that everyone who does that receives a hundredfold, and at the end of that, you receive eternal life. I want you to just let that sink in for just a moment. We who are completely undeserving of everything that we have from God, Jesus makes a promise to us, you will receive it a hundredfold, and you receive eternal life in God's kingdom. What we have to do is we have to stop seeing what we're giving up as a sacrifice and begin to see our lives as an investment 
for the sake of God's kingdom. So in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus follows this teaching up with a story. And we're just going to read it for a minute and then I'm going to make a few comments about this story. But in Matthew chapter 20, let's begin in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out at about the third hour, this is 9 a.m. by the way, and going out at about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you go to the vineyard too and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour, so that's going to be at noon, and the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., he did the same. And about the 11th hour, that's 5 p.m., he went out and find, found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with what? The last, the one I hired at 5 p.m., and make your way down to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. And when, they, when those who were hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose to do with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And so the last will be first and the first will be last. So you see the opening illustration I did with the plank, don't you? One holds it for 30 seconds, one holds it for five, and they both get paid the same. And I ask you the question, is that fair? Is it fair that Joseph had to strain a little bit more to hold it a little bit longer and Pam just basically got down there and, I mean, her form, your form, Pam, was terrible, right? She gets down there and does it for five seconds and then I give them both the same pay. From the, from the human standpoint, that's not fair. And so you can understand why the workers in the story had a complaint about Jesus. This story is about the kingdom of God. And Jesus makes that clear. He makes that clear in verse 1 of chapter 20. He says there that this is a parable about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like this. So in this parable, we're going to learn something about the kingdom we're going to learn something about the king, and we're going to learn something about the servants or the citizens of this kingdom. So I just want to tell you right off the bat, I'm going to ruin the surprise here in case you're wondering. I'm going to tell you who each person in the story represents, and then I want us to unpack three truths and then three actions from it. Got it? So the landowner in this story represents God. The servants who are hired represent Peter who asked the question, the disciples, but they represent me and they represent you or anyone who wants to follow after Jesus. 
And so the story is this, that the landowner owns a vineyard. He goes out to hire workers, some at 6 a.m., some at 9 a.m., some at noon, some at 3, and some at 5. And then at the end of the day, he calls them all together, and he pays them all the same. That's the story. But what you found at the end of the story is Jesus repeated in verse 16 what he had said in Matthew chapter 19 in verse 30. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And so the owner took his money and he paid everyone a day's wages. But I want you to look again at verse 8. And I paused when I was reading it. Where did the owner start? Who did he pay first? He paid the ones last first. And maybe the owner did that so that those who would work first would see what they earned, right? Maybe he did it for some other reason, but this verse gives us some insight into what Jesus is teaching. This is all about whose last shall be first and what that phrase means. And those who started at working at 6 a.m., when they saw the guy come in at 5 p.m., and the landowner paid them exactly the same, they had a problem with it. They said, wait, we worked all day, we sweated all day, we bore the burden of the heat. Why is it that we're getting paid the same amount as someone else and we did so much more work than they did? And the owner's response was very simple. Why are you complaining? It's my money. I can do with my money and my vineyard what I want to do with it. You're not the vineyard owner, I am. And did I treat you unfairly? I gave you exactly what I told you I was going to give you. So why are you complaining about what I gave to someone else? It's mine to give. And I choose to give the one at 5 p.m., the same thing that I gave to you that started at 6 a.m. Take what I gave to you and go. I didn't treat you unfairly. I treated you exactly the way that I said I would. So here are the three truths I want you to see in the story. This is the first one. Write this down. There is only one owner of the vineyard. There's only one. There's no indication in this story that the laborers who were hired for a denarius a day went out and he said, look, and as you go out and you work, I'm going to give you that portion of my vineyard. Nope. There's only one owner of the vineyard. And in verse one, he's the master of the house. And the word that's used to describe the vineyard is, it's his. It belongs to to him. And as the owner, he hires the laborers. He goes out at the various times. He's the one that chose to go out at six o'clock and nine o'clock and 12 o'clock. He can choose to hire laborers whenever he wants, however he wants, and pay them whatever he wants. That's his prerogative. That's his privilege as the owner of the vineyard. And then he sent them out to do the work. The second truth is this. The owner acts justly toward those who serve him. You'll see that in the story in verse four. In verse four of the story, you'll find that he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give it to you. He hired those workers at 9 a.m. and he told them, if you'll go out and work, I'll give what's right to you. I will give you what's just. But there's something noticeably different between verse four And what you see in verse 2, to the workers that he hired at 6 a.m., he told them the amount. I'm going to give you a denarius for your work. 
But for those that he hired at nine and at 12 and at three and at five, he said, I'll pay you what's right. And that's exactly what he did. He treated them justly. One of my favorite scenes from a movie is Napoleon Dynamite. It's a really kind of dumb movie, but he goes out and works all day for this chicken farm. And it's just disgusting and gross. And he's got to put the chickens in the cages. And the guy who pays him at the end pays him like with a, uh, just a jar full of pennies, just spare change. And Napoleon gets home and he counts it out. And he's like, it's sort of like $4 or something like that. It's just like some ridiculously low amount. And he's so frustrated because he's like, I worked all day with these chickens and I got paid an unfair amount. That is not the same. The owner of the vineyard acts justly toward those who serve him. Notice in verse 9 what he said, that he would do the same to those he hired at noon and 3 p.m. that he did to those at 9. He agrees to a certain amount for those who start at 6, but everyone else, he says, I'll give you what's right. So think about that for a second. Who determines what is the right amount to pay? The owner. Why? It's his money. My Adam is playing Little League Baseball, and I took him, took him up there after practice the other day to, he wanted something from the concession stand, and I looked in that concession stand window and took me back to when I was like 10 or 11 years old, and I had my first job at North Houston National Little League's concession stand, and my first job was to make snow cones. And so you'd pack the ice in, you know, you pack it with the ladle upside down, then you put one big scoop on top and you'd give them five squirts. And if it was a friend, I'd give them like an extra two, you know, that way it didn't dry out. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I don't know what the law was at that time. And I don't know what minimum wage was, but I promise you, I was being paid below that. (laughs) But it was the little league's responsibility to pay what they wanted to pay. And if I or my mom didn't want me to work in there, we could have said, I'm not going to do it. But I agreed to work for that wage, and that's what I got paid to work that job. You see, the owner owns it. It's his vineyard. It's his money. And so he's the one that determines what is right. And that's exactly what he did. He paid everyone in the story what was right. It may not have been what we would perceive as fair, but it's not our money. It's his. It's not our vineyard. It's his. And so he's the one that has the say over the vineyard. Truth number three, the servant is called to serve. In verse two, I want you to read, let's read a couple of verses together here. Verse two, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. What's the second word? What did they do? They agreed. The servant said, yes, I'll go work in your vineyard and that's what you'll pay me at the end of the day. But go down to verse 10. Now, when those who were hired first came, and let me just insert this here into the story, having seen that those who were hired at five o'clock were paid what they had agreed to at 6 a.m. to work, what did they do in verse 10? They thought that they would receive more. Some translations render that word thought. They supposed. They assumed. Oh man, these guys, if he paid them a denarius, 
something good must, hey, must hit the lottery. And so we who work six, man, we're, we're going to get 12 times that. But he paid them exactly what they had in verse two agreed to work. Now, why would they think in verse 10 that they were going to get more? Had the owner promised them that? They figured that's the way that it would work because in their minds, that's a fair trade. That's a fair deal. But remember the first truth we learned? There's only one owner of the vineyard. And as the servant, you are called to serve and not be the owner of the vineyard. He's the owner. Verse 11 and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you gave them exactly the same and I worked for you all day long. I was out there in the sweat and the sun and I served you and I served you and I served you and I worked my rear end off out here for you and you're gonna give that person exactly the same thing that you gave me and they worked one hour? God, that's not fair. And this is where servants get in trouble is when the servant begins to try to tell the owner this is the way to run your vineyard but there's only one owner of the vineyard and we as his servants are called to serve in verse 13 the owner reminds them hey this is my money and I paid you what I told you I would pay you so I don't know why you're grumbling against me, why you're complaining. We had an agreement and I honored that agreement and I treated you justly. And if I give that person who started at five o'clock the same amount that I gave you, it's my money. I can do with it as I want. You take what you have and you go and be satisfied with what you've received. Stop worrying so much about whether everything is fair. You ever get frustrated when your kids, when they say it's not fair? And what do you say? Life's not fair. And that's like the trump card, you know? Well, get used to it, kid. Right? I mean, that's what we're saying. And what the owner of the vineyard is saying is, I did you right. Stop worrying about what I do for somebody else. You did your job, and I paid you, and you were rewarded. Take what you got and go. And stop worrying about someone else. So here are the three lessons or actions that I want you to take today. Number one. I want you to know that it is possible to serve God with a wrong heart. And I think that's what Jesus saw in Peter's question. I'll serve you, but I also want to know what I'm going to get out of it. And Jesus' response is, I'm going to give you a hundred times, but I'm telling you that last phrase of eternal life is more than gracious. But we can serve Jesus and serve God, but serve him with the wrong heart. Maybe, maybe Peter was thinking, well, I'll, Lord, I, I should probably be reward, rewarded more because, you know, I left you at the very beginning. I've been with you from the beginning. And so when we're serving God, we have to always check our hearts because our hearts are desperately wicked. And we could be tempted to compare ourselves to other people. The second thing I would tell you is this, trust the heart of God. 
I want you to hear this. He always acts justly, even when we don't think he does. When it's your mom that receives the word that she has cancer, and someone else's mom does not receive that word, God is still just in that. And when one person is healed from cancer and your loved one is not, God is still just in that. And when someone who tithes and God blesses them with what seems like an abundance of possessions, God is just in that. And when you tithe and you honor God and you don't have what other people have financially, God is still just in that even when we don't think it. So in the midst of that, when we're looking and we're saying, hang on, that's like, I mean, he, he hasn't even been a Christian that long. And God, you're, you're already doing so much for him. And here I am, I've been a Christian for 20 years and I've been serving you and I've done kids ministry. And man, I even served in the nursery and I feel like mine's constantly a struggle and everything for him is so easy. In the midst of that, you have to trust the owner of the vineyard that his heart is good. And that he always acts justly toward us. I love what the owner says in verses 14 and 15. Listen to it again. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you, as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Why are you upset with me? I gave you what I told you. And are you upset about my generosity towards someone else? What is it about your heart that's not right? The third thing I would tell you is this, stop focusing on what you think is fair and just be faithful. Stop thinking about and focusing on what you think is fair and just be faithful. We should be thankful for what we have been given, but we dismiss it. I have to thank my wife for this. People joke all the time about preachers and their sermons. That's a good sermon. I'm going to tell your wife because I know she wrote it. I sat down with my wife this week and, uh, and I said, look, I, I just, I want to verbalize, this is the thought that the Lord's bringing to my mind, but I, I can't quite bring it, bring it out in the right way. And that's what she said. She said, you know what? Sometimes we're so worried about what's fair that our faithfulness begins to drop. And she said, we got to stop focusing on what's fair and just be faithful to what God has called you to do. Because the Christian life is not fair. And let me tell you why. None of us in this room who are children of God are going to get what we deserve. None of us. Jesus dying on the cross for you is inherently unfair. None of us are going to get what we deserve. We deserve eternity separated from God because we had sinned against him. So the whole Christian life is predicated on a savior who gave his life for you in one of the greatest injustices from the mind of man. It'd be like someone else being convicted of murder and going to death row and then someone else is placed in the electric chair in their place. That's unfair. But the whole Christian life is unfair. Because none of us is going to get what we deserve, and we get so much of what we don't deserve. We receive from God His mercy and His grace, and what we ought to do as children of God is simply take what we have received from the Master 
however we might perceive it to be when we compare it. Take what we receive and go and do our job as servants and just serve him. And let the master, the owner of the vineyard, sort it out. And let him show grace and favor to those to whom he wishes. And we just need to be faithful as servants of God. One of the most quoted missionaries in the history of the world, besides Paul, who was in in the Bible, is a man named Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary to unreached people in Ecuador. When you read his writing, and I'm not kidding when I say this, when you read the writings of someone like Jim Elliott, you immediately know from their writing that they have spent so much time at the feet of Jesus that it shames you when you read it the depth of their understanding of their relationship with God. Here's a man that was eloquent, he was trained, he was educated, and God called him to the unreached people of Ecuador, and they made contact with with a tribe of people that had never been reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They began with an airplane, they kind of circled around, dropped things down, then they landed, they made a contact, they gave one of the tribal members a flight in the airplane, and then they started coming back with the hope of trying to establish a relationship with these people in the jungles of Ecuador. And they landed their aircraft, and some guys from the tribe came out and pretended to be interested in their plane ride, and killed all five of those missionaries right there on the beach in Ecuador. And let me tell you something, that's not fair. From a human standpoint, that's not fair. Because here I am in the spring, Tomball, Woodlands area, in a beautiful air-conditioned building with wonderful people without any fear of anybody coming in here that's going to harm us today. But it's not my vineyard. I'm called to serve him where he calls me to serve. And God called Jim Elliott to serve where God called him to serve. And God called Paul to serve there. And God has called all of us to serve. And what we need to do is stop worrying about what's fair. Stop comparing ourselves to other people and just be faithful in what God has called us to be and to do. I'm reminded of what a conversation that Jesus had with Peter after Jesus had been crucified. It's not, not too long after this conversation. Jesus is crucified and he rose again. He met with his disciples on the beach after his resurrection and he prepares breakfast for them. And in that moment in John chapter 21, he tells Peter, he looks directly at him and he says, Peter, there's gonna come a day when you're gonna go to a place that you don't wanna go and people are gonna dress you and take you there. And he was predicting that Peter would give his life for the sake of Christ. In other words, they were gonna take him to be killed and that wasn't a place that he would wanna go. And you know what Peter's response was? John's sitting over there and he looks at John, you can read it in John 21, he says, well, Lord, what about him? (laughs) And that's a fair question from a human standpoint. Lord, I'm willing to go and die for you But are you going to ask John to do the same? And you know what Jesus' answer was? If it's my will that he lives until I return, what is that to you, Peter? You follow me. I'm the owner of this vineyard. It's my right to hire who I want, how I want, and to pay them what I want. Peter, stop worrying about trying to play the part of the master and you be faithful. Stop worrying about what's fair and simply be faithful. 
Would you stand today just with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? We're not going to offer a song today. But I just want to give you just a moment. We're going to pray that God would soften our hearts to follow him as we should. So will you join me in prayer? I want to pray first a prayer of confession and a prayer of repentance and a prayer asking God to strengthen us. Let's pray together. Father, you know our hearts. You know my heart. And I confess to you, Lord, that I am in danger often of trying to compare my life and the blessings of my life and what you do to me with what I see in other people. I'm, I'm guilty of that, Lord, and your word has brought that to my heart again and again this week. And so I confess that to you, Lord, and I repent of that wrong attitude. And I acknowledge today, Lord, with all my heart, this, this is your vineyard. This is your kingdom. I'm just your servant. So no matter what you ask me to do, Lord, I pray that I will be faithful to obey your voice. And Lord, that you would use me however you see fit to do whatever work you want me to do. And Lord, help me in my heart to not allow it to creep in where I'm worried about what I'm going to get out of this. Because you have already dealt with me so graciously and so mercifully, Lord. And so I just thank you for that. So I pray, Lord, that you'll just cleanse my heart of wrong motives, wrong ideas, wrong thoughts, wrong desires, and help me to be faithful to you. And I pray this for our church family as well. Lord, you've been so kind and so gracious to so many. Help us to just serve you faithfully. When we're tired, help us to be faithful. When we want to give up, help us to be faithful. When things are great, help us to be faithful. Help us to be servants that will be used for your glory and honor in all things, Lord. So strengthen us, we pray, for the work that you've called us to do. And help us to see the fields around us that we're working in, Lord, not as an opportunity for us to better ourselves or to get another promotion or to, you know, escalate somehow in the, in the, in the world, you know, of, of our jobs and getting a better title and more money and all that stuff, Lord. Help us to see the field that you've placed us in as an opportunity to share the life-changing message of Jesus with them. And so help us to be faithful in what you've called us to do. We pray these things in the powerful and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.